Welcome to Silicon Valley Founders Secrets. My name is Christina Jewweaver. And my name is Mahamanyan Kamau. Our guests today are Dorothy and Marty Hellman. They are co-authors of the book, A New Map for Relationships, Creating True Love at Home and Peace on the Planet. Dorothy trained as a CPA and worked at Tush Ross, now in Deloitte. She left her career to become a full-time volunteer at the Beyond War Foundation, where she served as Vice President for Financial Support. Marty is best known for his invention of public key cryptography, the technology that is used to transfer trillions of dollars every day. He is the winner of the 2015 ACM Turing Award, often called the Nobel Prize in Computer Science. He is a professor emeritus at Stanford University. Hi, how are you, Dorothy and Marty? We're great. Great to be here. Thank you, Christina and Mahama. Welcome to our show. Thank you. And uh, I uh, was wondering, why do you write a book, A New Map for Relationship, and how this book will help us in this current time, especially during pandemic, people are staying at home, and there's so much conflict in society right now. Why don't you start, Dorothy? Well, we had a lot of conflict in our relationship. (laughs) (laughs) And in fact, 10 years into our relationship, we almost got divorced. But we fought and we struggled to keep our relationship going and looked in a lot of different places for knowledge to help us. And, you know, we've come to the part where we haven't had a argument in over 20 years and we've discovered ways to do that and so we wanted to share that with people so that's why we wrote the book yeah and i'd have to add when dorothy says we i didn't even know that she was thinking of leaving me i knew she was in pain i was in pain but that just seemed normal to me but in the book i described dorothy as the princess and the p of relationship conflict and i mean that in the best possible way and so she went looking and she uh, found what this group that no longer exists, but that was a stepping stone for us. And uh, she really, I, in the book, I say Dante in the Inferno. Uh, Dante had his uh, um, Beatrice, uh, his guide to heaven. Uh, I have my Dorothy. So she's been my guide. And now she says she couldn't do it without me. And that's true. But I never would have thought of doing this without her uh, insight, without her uh, vision, without her foolishness in the best sense of the word. Wow, you haven't had argument for 20 years? That's amazing. That's amazing. Well, uh, I think I, there's a I, lot we can learn from you guys. I, and I would have said that was impossible. In fact, many times, in the book I say many times, Dorothy, uh, I, t- I said to Dorothy, I've done more than any husband I know and you want more? What do you want from me? And if she told me she wanted to bring a little bit of heaven down to earth, I wouldn't have believed her. But that's what's happened. I mean, this morning, in fact, we thank each other for being there, you know, for still for for the hard work. And uh, uh, Dorothy, what did you say? I think I said six times a day. I think you said, and I said I don't mind, and I say it six times a day too. Well, in your book, you mentioned about uh, creating a true love at home and uh, peace uh, on the planet. You talk about how marriage uh, you married as a polar opposite, and how it almost destroyed your marriage. Can you tell us more about it? Sure. Again, uh, I tend to talk a lot, so I'm always going to throw it to Dorothy. But if she wants me to say something, what? 
You answer that one. Okay, so we married as polar opposites. Um, I, I actually am into my feelings, but now more than I was. But as a small boy, when I was into my feelings, it got me in trouble. If I cried, I was ridiculed as a crybaby. If I shrank back in fear, the other boys would pounce on me. So as a young, as a, an adolescent, I learned to hide my feelings. I learned to retreat. In fact, I think I say to the cold, hard uh, fortress of logic. And uh, I tried doing everything logically. And it worked wonders because I no longer cried. I no longer shrank back. I could fool people. And it worked wonders. It saved my life as a teenager, but it was destroying my life as an adult and it was destroying our marriage. And uh, the, I, it felt like it would be going back to being this helpless child to be in touch with my feelings. And yet it wasn't a circle where I went back to where I was. It was a spiral where I went up. And I'm still not as in touch with my feelings as Dorothy is. In fact, tell them what, when, when, when I hold you sometimes, you know, what you feel in your heart, tell them. Well, I feel love in my heart. And you feel it in your heart. You actually, you said it. You, you I do. It. I feel it in my heart. That and, happens but, for many people, Marty. <laughs> well, it doesn't, I don't feel it there. I mean, it used, you don't feel it? <laughs> no, I, I know. I mean, sometimes I break down in tears at how much I love this woman. I mean, it could happen here as we're talking. I could suddenly remember something and it just strikes me. But most of the time, I don't feel things the way she does. But I know I'd be lost without her. But so uh, we met, we were polar opposites and that got us in a lot of trouble. In fact, do you remember the time that I told you you can't feel a certain way? Yes. Why don't you tell that one? Well, um, he'd been telling me that for a long time. And all of a sudden it occurred to me that that was the most ridiculous thing on the face of the planet because um, <laughs> he, he said that isn't logical. You can't feel that way. It doesn't make any sense. Logical. <laughs> and so I just turned to him and I, I, I said, what? How can it? Feelings don't have to be logical. They're just not logical. So that was the end of that. He couldn't use that argument on me anymore. And what I really meant is it makes me uncomfortable when you feel that way. Please <laughs> don't feel that way. And I couldn't say that. So I had to use logic. And there was a, we, we were going through some old photographs and um, um, other memorabilia, and we found something from, it must have been 1965, when I was a junior in college and applying for membership in Taubeta Pi, the Engineering Honor Society. And uh, it asked for, um, what are your greatest strengths and greatest weaknesses? And so I had to find a weakness to talk about. <laughs> you had to. <laughs> and so I said, well, I sometimes use logic when it really doesn't apply because both parties have made up their minds in this dispute by irrational means. But our society values logic so highly that I always win because the other person will break down and then I've won. And what did you say? You remember, honey? Said you. Yeah, you said. That person you've been doing <laughs> all along, you even knew it was happening. And I said, actually, by that time it had become second nature, so I didn't even know I was doing it. But it was a misuse of logic. And this is something we need to overcome both interpersonally, you can see that here, but internationally, like we have this logic of nuclear deterrence that we've never really examined. Uh, I can't point to one, and also it's where you see the effect. I can't point to one international conflict that I've resolved by my work. I can't point to one nuclear weapon I've made go away. 
but I know that my relationship with Dorothy is fantastic. I get, and I get benefit from that every day. So that's the other thing. You see the personal benefit, whereas it's harder to see at the international level. So the two really go together. We were very lucky that the place Dorothy found initially in 1980 uh, worked on the, uh, the micro and the macro at the same time. The micro for us was making peace in our marriage. The um, macro at that point was environmental issues. And then when the nuclear threat came into sharp focus in 1981, we realized we'd been neglecting the largest environmental threat of all, which is nuclear war. And as we, as we researched the threat of nuclear war, we realized you can't get rid of the nuclear weapons, you can't get rid of the threat of nuclear war without getting rid of the irrationality that leads to war in the first place. And so that was a positive. It took a negative, the nuclear threat, and turned it into a positive, the imperative for building a more peaceful world and a more peaceful home. That is something that I also found fascinating related to these issues of interpersonal relationships is the concept of compassion and holistic thinking that you talk about quite a bit in your book. But I want to start with a more basic question. What is compassion? How does one develop it? And how does it get developed on a more societal slash global level? I'm going to let Dorothy answer most of it. I've got to start off by saying I originally saw the solution as, as holistic thinking. I, I think Dorothy said, no, it's compassion. And I said to her, I looked it up in the dictionary. Compassion was defined, the first definition, as um, sympathetic pity for the suffering of others. And when I said this to Dorothy, I said, see, compassion's not enough. Do you remember what you said? No. Oh, you said, that's not the kind of compassion I'm talking about. <laughs> we need so to redefine it. So tell them what, how you see compassion. Well, compassion is the golden rule. It's treating the other person the way you would treat yourself. It's um, becoming one with the other person and really wanting the best for them and feeling how they, what they need. And, but it's more a feeling of oneness than anything else. It's total acceptance. It's total responsiveness. It's totally belief in that person as that person is. So that's compassion. And you develop it by practicing it. <laughs> you just, every time you discover that you're not in that space, you say, well, I could have been in compassion and I wasn't. So where do I go from here? And there's another thing you realize, Tony, that the, first, the person you have to have the most compassion for is? Yourself. Yes, that when you find yourself not being compassionate, instead of beating yourself up, you need to practice compassion for yourself. We've grown up, in, in fact, Dorothy has five steps for compassion, for uh, uh, self-criticism, actually, that is the most recent thing we've been working on. Well, actually, as you talk about compassion, I was thinking about asking a question, like, what if that person's not worthy? Then I thought, sometimes I'm thinking the most person uh, it's, you know, you're hard to forgive is yourself. You're thinking, wow, I made this, this mistake and I cannot forgive myself. And why didn't, why didn't I do that? Every person is worthy of compassion. Yeah. And look, so I had some trouble with this. I, I'm Jewish, as you know. Uh, but a lot of what we learned in the group that preceded beyond what was called Creative Initiative came from the Gospels. Uh, it, but we studied Jesus as a Jewish reformer, not as a Christian messiah. And one of, the, uh, one of the teachings that gave me a lot of trouble was pray for those who despitefully use you. 
I mean, why would I pray for those who are despitefully using me? I mean, am I going to, God, help them despitefully use me. But after a while, what I realized is that's not the kind of God I believe in. The God I believe in, if I pray, God bless these, this person who's despitefully using me, God would bless them with insight and compassion and, and self-knowledge, and they would stop despitefully using me. And so every person's worthy of compassion. Because the compassion that we have, they would, if, if they actually experience the blessings we're talking about, they would stop being such nasty people. And the people who had to stop being nasty people, the, the ones we had the most control over, who did I have the most control over in terms of his nastiness, honey? Yeah. Yourself. A lot of the problem has to do with judgment, too. We can't be compassionate when we're in in the framework of judgment. Um, I'll tell a story. I was walking down the street and there was a woman in front of me and she was wearing a black brassiere under a white see-through shirt. And I started thinking, well, she shouldn't be doing that. That's not attractive. That's not the way you wear clothes. And I was thinking and thinking and all this and I stopped and I thought, this is the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. Here I am on a beautiful sunny day, looking at a beautiful woman walking down the street. And all I can think of is her shirt. This is just ridiculous. And so I, I realized that I couldn't be present to the beauty of the place and the beauty of her if I'm stuck in judgment, which is kind of the opposite of compassion. And um, then I found out that that was the style. So it was all... <laughs> We're old fogies. We grew up in the fifties when wearing <laughs> underwear on, uh, 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 was, was not um, uh, stylish. But this was the era of Madonna, for example, and this was like thirty years ago. Well, I think it's still relevant, you know, for today. You know, I think my fashion changes. I think now we go back to the eighties style. Now, <laughs> book, we had a lot of trouble because Dorothy kept saying judgment is the problem, and I kept saying, but we need judgment. And what we eventually realized is there's a difference between good judgment and judgmentalism. Mm, okay. And it's only when you're judging someone, putting them down, ju being judgmental, that it's a problem. I mean, it's important when I see somebody who looks like a, a murderer that I walk to the other side of the street or a robber. That's good judgment. You see well, that's difference? called discernment. Discernment, so, yes. Judgment, yeah. discernment. But it's, so you need to be careful. Mm -hmm. Okay, great. So you've been married for 50 years. Does 50 the process, yeah, 53 years. Does the process of building a new relationship map continue? And then what are the, some of the current changes in your life? Especially things, uh, especially th uh, since like you, you wrote the book a few years ago. Okay, so actually the one, I, the one I remember most for me is anxiety and Dorothy probably wants to talk about self uh, uh, berating oneself, which is something uh, that several months ago, she asked me if there's anything I saw she needed to work on. And that's the only thing I could see that she was too hard on herself. And she's done a great job on that. But anxiety, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you about. This goes back several years ago. So, but it was a couple of years after we wrote the book. We're getting ready to take a four hour car trip to visit Dorothy's father. And we were running late and I was getting anxious. And uh, I, so I went, went through a simple five-step process that uh, a woman named Byron Katie, and she has a lot of online videos that people oh, okay. And she has a book uh, uh, also, read ours first, but then read hers, uh, Loving What Is. 
Um, I read that book. Yeah. So she has a five-step process. Is it true? I, I identified the thought that was causing my anxiety. Bad things will happen because we're running late. Is it true? No. All we have to do is call Dorothy's father and tell him we're running a little bit late. I got to skip the second question, which I because that's only if you say yes, bad things will happen. The third question is how do I behave when I believe the thought? I get anxious. I, I I'm clipped with Dorothy. I wasn't mistreating her the way I would have 30 years ago, but I wasn't being as loving to her as I wanted to be. Uh, a whole bunch of negative things. And I might get into an accident. I was in such a hurry. Um, the fourth step is who would I be if I couldn't believe the thought, if I couldn't hold the thought that bad things will happen because we're running late. I'd be on a man getting ready to go on a beautiful trip through a wonderful country with a woman he loves listening to great music. I'd be looking forward to this thing. And the fifth step is a turnaround where you negate the thought. And there are several negations, but the only one I'll do here because of time is um, uh, good things will happen because we're running late. At first, it seems like that's ridiculous, but a good thing <laughs> did happen. It made me realize I needed to, I was getting, it, it brought into focus that I got anxious when it served no useful purpose. And getting, moving past anxiety was a very important thing for me to do from many points of view. I'm, I'm practicing five points about uh, not being <laughs> myself. The first one is it's normal. Everybody does it. It's part of our culture. And in fact, um, since society teaches to do it, it helps us a lot um, to get along in society. The second point is it's egotistical. Uh, we, and because while we're doing it, we can't think of anybody else. We can't think of anything else as what we're doing. Oh, and one other thing, honey. You, you berated yourself over things that you would have forgiven any friend over. And so you were holding yourself to a higher standard as if some, I mean, which is good, but it's a negative to, to, to assume that you're better than everybody else. That's what you decided, as I remember it. Yes. Um, we're not able to be in the moment while we're um, berating ourselves. And so being present is really important. Being present in the moment is uh, one of the most profound and exciting places to be. If we can be in the moment, then everything else falls away. And uh, life is just, well, it's just present. It's just good. It's what's in front of you. And you can celebrate that. So it's a celebration. So you lose the opportunity of celebration if you're um, berating yourself. I just want to add something. Dorothy has a children's book called The Precious Present. And this little boy keeps wondering what this precious present is. He's expecting a gift. And it's the precious present that Dorothy talked about. Keep, go back to your fourth item. It's, it's not something that we want to keep in our tool belt. We have a lot of different things in our tool belt. Lots of emotions we use. A lot of a lot of ways to think about that we use. And so we need to take it out of our toolbox and we need to put something new in our toolbox that we can um, use instead, like um, self-love for one thing. Um, so compassion. And compassion. So there are many, many things you can put in your toolkit that are worthy rather than berating yourself. And the last thing is, speaking of compassion, we are all worthy of love and we, we do not deserve to be berated. So at the end of it, hopefully you feel like you're not berating yourself anymore. There you go. So I'm working on that. And actually, it's very quick. I mean, when you asked me this several months ago and I mentioned that as a possibility and you quickly picked up on it, 
uh, I mean, you continued to work on it, but almost immediately you were able to deal with it. Yeah. Which you wouldn't have been able to do 30 years ago. So it's something you learn. It's practice. Practicing compassion. Oh, practicing compassion. <laughs> One of the questions I think a lot of people, including me, uh, I think I asked you before is, what uh, what do you do if the other party does not change? You still... Well, uh, I'll, uh, I'll tell you a story about my father-in-law. <laughs> it's in the book. Um, in fact, it's called Sometimes It Only Takes One. It yeah. only takes one, okay. I want to talk about a different story in the book that I think Dorothy relates about when I think she was angry and then you said you loved her even though she was angry. Oh! <laughs> One of you are saying, no, love me because I am angry. And that really captured my, my mind. I go, it seems really counterintuitive, isn't it? Could you say more about this and how embracing and transforming negative emotions like anger might benefit relationships? So there's a section there called uh, Moving Beyond Anger, uh, and you have to first embrace anger. Uh, and and st- you can't be angry at your angry self uh, to move beyond it. And if you try walking around anger, you'll never actually uh, move through it. You have to move through it to get beyond it. So the story there was uh, Dorothy had spent... How much time had you spent studying anger that back then? Six months. She spent six months studying anger and getting... Because I'll, I'll tell them as a child, how was anger treated in your family of origin? I was not allowed to be angry. Right. And she decided she needed to get comfortable with this emotion. And uh, it used to scare the bejesus out of me when she got angry. I mean, she's only, as I say in the book, she's only five foot three. But when she became angry, she was this monster that was going to eat me alive. And Aww. I was so proud of myself um, that I was not getting, I, 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 and I said to her, I said, Dorothy, I want you to know I love you even though you're angry. And remember, she's angry and she looks at me and she's, but she's, she made enough progress that she wasn't mistreating me. She was just getting in touch with her anger. And she said to me in an angry tone, you've got to love me, not even though I'm angry, you've got to love me because I'm angry. <laughs> and so I went off uh, crestfallen because I had expected, you know, kudos from her. Oh, how wonderful. But then I realized it was unrealistic to expect an angry person to appreciate you. And I also realized that at that point in our relationship, not today, but back then, Dorothy only could tell me certain things and she only got in touch with certain things inside herself when she was angry, that they were, they were in a pressure cooker that had been kept down. And only when she got angry did they come up and could she express them and I hear them. And so I realized that if I could make her anger go away, I wouldn't do it at that point in time. And actually, even now, too, whatever it is, loving what is, it's, you know, the Byron Katie idea. Um, I don't get angry anymore, though. You don't. No. But, but back then, so I came back to you and I said, okay, you're right. I love you because you're angry. So in fact, we now have transformed that. I love you because you're anxious. I love you because you're angry. I love you because whatever it is and to whoever it is. And it's an expression, not just that Dorothy and I have, but we have with our grandkids. And uh, it works wonders. It's part of the new map. The old map says you should be angry at someone who's angry, which, of course, just produces more anger. It doesn't work. There's another thing that might be interesting. It's the wisdom which you had mentioned. I know that's of interest to you, the wisdom of foolishness. Uh, would you like me to talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I think oh, that's yeah. fantastic, yeah. Okay, so first of all, there's an entire 
lecture that I gave when I was named a Stanford engineering hero about five or 10 years ago. I gave a talk on um, the wisdom of foolishness. So it started about 35 years ago. Dorothy um, was doing tarot and I came in and I said, why are you doing tarot? These fortune telling cards, we don't believe in that crap. And <laughs> well, I was a little bit afraid of it, which comes in our society because the church has made anything mystical that's not of the church, you know, going back, not so much now, but you know, when we were growing up, it's made it of the devil. And so Dorothy had an understandable fear of tarot and she decided, and this is one thing I love about her, if she was going to be afraid of it, she ought to know what it is first. And so she was doing tarot. And so she said, would you like me to do your reading? I said, sure. So she does it, and let's see what silly cards say. So she does my tarot reading and it ends up that I'm the fool. And my first reaction is, I'm no fool. I didn't quite say this, but I was feeling this. I'm a Stanford professor. I'm world famous. <laughs> Uh, I'm not and then she pointed out, Dorothy pointed out the positive aspects of the fool, that the fool goes where no one else goes in particular. And I realized that my success professionally, and I would now add my success in our relationship, our success in our relationship is because we we're willing to do things that seemed foolish from the old map. And I was very honored this uh, last summer, a year ago, to give, be invited to give a talk to the annual meeting of Nobel laureates because I'd won the Turing Award. And um, uh, I, the wisdom of foolishness was not the main theme, but it, it did figure. And if people want to watch that talk, if they go to my uh, Stanford website and click on publications, it's I think the last publication is actually a link to the video of the talk uh, as well. And I... I had a chance to ask five of the Nobel laureates before I gave my talk, the work that won you your Nobel Prize, was it seen as foolish before you it paid off or was it encouraged? Because my work in cryptography was seen as foolish. And there's uh, stories about that uh, in the book with Jim O'Mora, a UCLA professor at the time. And four of the five said, oh, my work was discouraged. People said I was crazy. Uh, uh, Danny Sheckman uh, who won his Nobel Prize in chemistry for quasi-crystals, was derided by Linus Pauling, a two-time Nobel Prize winner, as doing quasi-science. So the best ideas usually seem crazy a priori. And I've got to say, when Dorothy proposed that we could never fight again, uh, that seemed crazy to me. But it was, a, it was very wise foolishness. So the wisdom of foolishness applies in many areas, and including in the entrepreneurial scheme. Oh, that's a good example. When Google was first being formed, I, as a Stanford professor, I knew about the search engine before most people. And Dan Bonet, who's another professor here in computer science, he's given me permission to say this. He and I were using the search engine, but we said to one another, but how are they ever going to make money from free search? <laughs> well, they made a damn, they made a ton of Good money. money. <laughs> we just, we should have asked it as a question instead of stating it as a statement. I listened to you. Um... Um, your lecture on that topic as well. I think you also mentioned uh, a lot of examples such as like people invented GPS system and DSL. Oh. Yes. <laughs> yeah, that's in the Stanford Hero lecture, not in the Nobel yeah. lecture. Yeah. Um, yes, um, Brad Parkinson, who uh, was the chief architect uh, and then the guy who pushed GPS, I, and I emailed him to make sure I got it right. He wrote back the Air Force in the 1960s when he was first working on GPS thought GPS was crazy because a, a receiver cost a quarter of a million dollars, weighed, I think, 150 pounds, took two kilowatts of power, 
uh, whereas today, but he could foresee the digital revolution that was underway and that that receiver that weighed that much and cost that much today would be a small portion of a chip that costs pennies, uses milliwatts of power, and we all, our lives are so much better for it. Yeah, thank, 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 uh, I'm very thankful for people who invented the GPS system the technology. Otherwise, I would be still go with the old map. <laughs> and uh, maybe our book should change to a new GPS. <laughs> yes. That's another example of we need a new and better map. So fact, exactly. the, tell them where the, the title of the book comes from, honey. Oh. The first story about you tearing up the map. We were at... Um, Twin Peaks going to a program and Marty, I, I was looking at the map and Marty grabbed it out of his hand, out of my hands. And I was furious. It's something he did that made me furious. And so I, I figured he knew I'm, it made me furious. So I got Why? Why are you were furious? Well, something he because he had a habit of when I was doing something, He'd take it away from me without asking and then do it himself as if I couldn't do it. Okay. So, so, and he had a habit of doing it and it just infuriated me. So I got out of the car and I stomped off and I thought for a while. And then I came back and got in and then he was still looking at the map and ignoring me. Because I was trying to pretend I didn't know what I'd done wrong, which in hindsight seems crazy. <laughs> so I took the map. I grabbed the map away from him and I tore it into a lot of little pieces and threw it all over the car. And um, luckily, Marty started to laugh. I could see how crazy, I mean, I could see how foolishly we were both behaving, and me included. And then and, I, I started to laugh. And then we had to put the map together to get to the place we were. Okay. To go. So and we realized, and we realized that that was the new map. And we use that as a metaphor that we needed to tear up the old maps that said when you get it, when you're not getting what you want, you yell. And then we never got what we wanted by yelling. And yet that's what we kept doing. The old maps had us driving into cliffs repeatedly, but it was scary to tear them up because if someone asked, how are you going to get where you want to go? We'd say, we have no idea. Where do you want to go? I don't know, but it's going to be a better place than this. And that's one another reason we've written the book is it's to help describe the, 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 the destination and the pathways for getting there, but people still have to discover them on their own. You shared with me your work with minority students. Can you share with your experience uh, while you're as a Stanford professor working with some of the minority students and resolving some of the issues on campus? So first, a caveat. I, I went emeritus 25 years ago, so we're describing work that started in 1986, so you know, 35 years ago almost, and ended 25 years ago. But things I don't think are that different. So I had been on a year and a half leave without pay from the university from the middle of 84 to the end of 85, working as a full-time volunteer in Beyond War alongside Dorothy. And I'd worked on the Soviet-American uh, Soviet conflict, and we published a, uh, a book uh, that I was co-editor of uh, Breakthrough Emerging New Thinking, or Prodiv, came out in Russian there and in English here late in 87, just as America was beginning to take Gorbachev seriously. And what I'd seen working with the Soviets is that the fundamental problem was that we were really good at seeing where the Soviet Union was making mistakes in the world. And they were really good at seeing where we were making mistakes in the world. 
but neither of us was focusing where we had power to produce change, which is where we were making mistakes in the world, just like in the marriage. And when I came back to Stanford, I started to work more with minority students because I was teaching undergraduates, which I hadn't done before. And there was a larger uh, black and Latino population uh, within the undergraduates. And I saw the same problem that the majority, we, we couldn't say it because it wasn't politically correct. We could see where the minorities were prejudiced against us and were making mistakes, uh, but we were blind to our own prejudices. And they were really good at seeing where we were um, uh, uh, racist, prejudiced, et cetera, but they were blind, uh, or even if they saw it, they couldn't say it because it was not politically acceptable within their communities, the black community, the Latino community. So I developed a no-fault approach to racism and prejudice, as I called it. And we'd experienced this in our marriage. Like if Dorothy's parents had been upset at her marrying a Jew, that would have been anti-Semitism. And I would have expected her to tell them in no uncertain terms that they this was not this was not allowed. But the fact that my mother was upset that I was marrying someone who wasn't Jewish was supposed to be understandable, even though it hurt Dorothy every bit as much uh, as the as, as the reverse. And so I developed this no-fault approach and I worked with individual students and uh, it was recognized by three awards from uh, minority student organizations. I learned a lot from working with minority students uh, uh, and the no -fault, I still like this no-fault approach and I think it's critical. Although we do need to recognize that while we are all prejudiced and the best place to work on prejudice is within ourselves, we do need to recognize that in this country and in the world in general, uh, white people do have more power than people of color. And so the, the, it's even more critical that we work on racism within the uh, white community and particularly within the police department. Uh, I called a friend of mine because I'm very sympathetic to the police. I have an uncle who's 100 years old. I think he just, yeah, he just turned 100. Um, and uh, he was a police officer in New York. Uh, and I've always been sympathetic to the police. They put their lives on the line. Um, they risk, you know, it's easy for us to judge what they do. It's much harder when you're out there and, and, and your life is in danger. But I called a friend of mine about my age, who's a retired police officer and a really good guy. And I asked him, I said, what fraction of the police are bad apples, you know, bad eggs? And he said, oh, about 25%, which shocked me. And he wow. said, it's mostly the older police, uh, and, but something needs to be done about them. Uh, and so we, we do have a problem. So what are you looking forward to do after this pandemic's over? Um, I can't wait to see you guys uh, in person, but what's your next um, project? Well, our ongoing project is our relationship and our relationships with ourselves. So like Dorothy, as I said, just maybe two or three months ago, asked me, yeah. do, you, do I see anything that you needed to work on? And I said, well, <laughs> the thing is, I think you're a bit hard on yourself and that led her to take on berating herself. Um, I'm con continuing to work on anxiety. Rethinking national security is my project at the um, uh, global level. Well, thank you for coming to the show and uh, thank you for sharing with us uh, your book and some of your uh, the thoughts. And where can the can we find this book? Oh, on Amazon? If you go to my Stanford website, which is easy, just do a web search on Hellman Stanford. At the very top, it says, get his new book free or something like that. And you can download <laughs> the PDF. If people prefer hard copy, they can go to Amazon and search on um, a new map or Martin Hellman, Dorothy Hellman, and it'll come up and they can buy a hard copy. Thank you so much for making 
your time available to us today. Uh, it was wonderful talking to you, and uh, we look forward to continue to read about some of the things that you're working on now. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much.